0: Hear God's word from Mark chapter six, verses one through six a. He, that is Jesus, went away from there and came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter? The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Thanks be to God. When you think of a homecoming, especially as people who live in the greater Cleveland area, we can't help but think of LeBron. LeBron James came home to Cleveland, and I moved to Ohio around that time, 2015, good time to move to Ohio, and Cleveland welcomed him. With incredible applause, they put a picture of him, massive picture of him up on the buildings downtown, and he was, needless to say, the most popular person in town. People love to watch him play. You would think that Jesus, who is incomparably greater than LeBron James, you would think that he, returning to his hometown, would have something like that but he has quite the opposite instead of being welcomed. He is scoffed at they are offended by him. The point tonight is that when Christ comes to his own people to teach them and to bless them, let us be those who receive him with humility and eagerness. Now we're going to look at this in three parts. We'll look at Jesus, the man, Part one. And then we'll look at Jesus as he marvels. And then we'll look at the Jesus of faith. Jesus, the man, Jesus, as he marvels and the Jesus of faith. So far in Mark, we've seen over five chapters, the incredible display of divine authority through Jesus, his ministry has pushed back the kingdom of darkness. He has been ushering in the kingdom of God. He has been proclaiming the gospel of repentance and belief. And he has been enacting the kingdom of God as he has power over demon possession, as he has power over sickness and uncleanness, as he even has power over the natural forces of the sea. And he's been received with remarkable success. Now there's a story That is a parallel to this one in Mark chapter one. When Jesus goes to Capernaum, there are some very intentional parallels that Mark draws between these two. First of all, Jesus comes on the Sabbath in both places. He entered the synagogue in both places. He went to teach in both places. And the response was astonishment in both places. So we would expect that as Jesus went into Capernaum and was able to cast out a demon and they were astonished and marveled at what he did, they received him positively, we would expect the same thing here in Nazareth, especially since it's his hometown. And in the passages that we just looked at last week, the end of chapter 5, we see that Jesus is the object of faith for Jairus and the woman. They fell down at the feet of Jesus. And so for the success to continue, we would expect that as he comes home, even more will fall down at his feet. But in We see that in both of these ways that Jesus has been gaining success that does not continue here in Nazareth. They get stuck on how ordinary Jesus is, how ordinary he is. Let's take a minute to look at his family. Again, we'd expect them to be insiders. They're the ones who know him. They've lived with him the longest. We would expect them to trust him the most, but they so far in this book have proven themselves to be outsiders. So we may have seen this coming Because in chapter three, they came and said, Jesus, he's out of his mind. And they tried to pull him away from the crowd. And then they symbolically stood outside of the building while Jesus was inside with the disciples, teaching them with his true family, his spiritual family. But they know a bit about Jesus. They actually ask six questions about Jesus in verses two and three. We'll look first at the questions in verse three. Verse three says, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? So they know about Jesus's line of work and they know about Jesus's family. They know about his line of work as a carpenter. This is a normal job. There's no special honor attached to this, but there's also no dishonor with this job. It's a very normal job, a needful job, an important part of the community. A carpenter was probably more along the lines of a craftsman in those days, worked with wood and stone because stone was such a plentiful resource in those places. But what he's not is a learned scribe. He's not studied under a famous rabbi. His family also, or the the people in Nazareth also know who his family is. And you see that by the fifth and sixth questions that they ask. They know his mother. They know his brothers and they know his sisters. This is a pretty normal bunch. He had four half brothers and at least two half sisters. None of them were divine. And he's listed as the son of Mary. He's also not listed as the son of the carpenter, but listed as the carpenter. So there's good reason to think that Joseph at this point had probably passed away. We see the names of James and Judas. James became quite a leader in the Jerusalem church. We see that in Acts 15, but also Jude is likely the Jude who wrote the book of Jude, Judas Jude. So James wrote the epistle called James and Jude wrote the epistle called Jude, but they don't get it yet in this scene. They have not yet bowed the knee to their half brother, Jesus. They don't understand now, but they do down the road. And just a little side note is that we can't give up on people who don't get it yet. Let's continue to show them faithfully who Jesus is. Because we know that God will save his children. But what we see because of this encounter and these questions they ask, they know how ordinary Jesus is. This shows us how entirely human Jesus is. Not exclusively human, but fully human. There were so many so far in the book of Mark who are propping him up as superhuman, superstitious approaches. If I could just touch his garment, then I will be healed. They may not have robust theologies of his divinity as of yet, but he is an impressive superhuman in some of their eyes. His family, however, they're stuck on his ordinary humanity. And we need Jesus to be human. If he is not human, we have no salvation. We're talking about Jesus, the man, the guy who grew up down the street from me, the guy who worked with his dad on almost every other neighbor's house at some point in our town, the guy who went to synagogue with all the other families. In Hebrews chapter 2, we see why it's important that Jesus was this ordinary and this human. Hebrews 2 verses 16 and 17 say this, He helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He became like us. He took on ordinary humanity and not just at the age of 30. He took it on throughout his childhood, throughout his upbringing and his family can't get past that. Of course, we cannot say that Jesus is only human. He is both fully God and fully man. And Nazareth misses his divinity because they can't look past his humanity. I think the words of the Athanasian Creed do a great job of helping us not miss what Nazareth missed. Listen to the words of the Athanasian Creed, lines 30 through 32. For the right faith... First of all, that's quite a bold statement. Our culture balks at anybody who claims to have the right faith. Let me tell you, this is the right faith. The right faith is that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is God and man. God of the substance of the Father begotten before the worlds and man of substance of his mother born in the world. Perfect God and perfect man. That's Jesus. And he returns home as the hometown prophet, as the hometown prophet, and he faces dishonor. They don't believe. We have a saying, familiarity breeds contempt. Jesus was quoting a pretty similar proverb that these people would have known. He says, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. So we see Jesus, the man here. Let's now turn for a moment to look at Jesus as he marvels. It should have been that the people marveled at Jesus as they had done so far in the book of Mark. They were astonished. It's kind of a flexible word that can have a positive meaning or a negative meaning. It was positive in Capernaum. They were astonished at Jesus and received his teaching. And in the Decapolis, after Jesus cast out Legion, they were astonished In a positive way, but here in Nazareth, it's in a negative sense. They're astonished. Who is this? They should have been marveling at Jesus. But instead, Jesus ends up marveling at their unbelief. Now, Luke gives us a little more detail about what happened in this instant. He tells us in chapter 6. Excuse me, that's the parallels here. Mark chapter 6, verse 2. But in Luke's telling of this, they actually took Jesus up on a cliff and tried to push him off. That's the kind of reception he's getting in his hometown. That is negative astonishment. They don't see him. So let's, let's pause for a moment. Let's not make that same mistake. Let's take a moment to consider who this Jesus is, according to Mark's gospel. He's the God man. You will remember that from the very first verse of the book, the son of God, the Messiah. And Mark unrolls who Jesus is. The hearers get it more and more throughout the story. The characters start to understand little by little throughout the book. And the response so far has been a lot of marveling and some who trust. Here in Nazareth, it's a lot of astonishment and very few who trust. And they did know some things about Jesus. They had heard. We see this from the questions that they asked in verse 2. Many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? They know that he has great spiritual understanding and they know that he has great wisdom. And they ask, Where did he get these things? His teachings in the synagogue in Capernaum, he was described with great authority. And they said, Where did he get such authority? He wasn't even trained as a scribe. He doesn't even have a master's degree. And they know of his mighty works. Some have even seen them. And they say, what are these mighty works done by his hands? His hands are the ones that are supposed to work with wood and stone, not bring supernatural healing. And so they took offense. The word for offense is to stumble. They stumbled at him. And this meaning of stumbling is always related to faith. It's a lack of faith. So their stumbling, their offense is unbelief. Earlier in the book, we thought that the Pharisees, those who knew the Old Testament so well, who knew the scriptures so well, we thought they would see who Jesus is in knee, But they don't get it. And so we would think that the family who knows Jesus so well that they would get it, but they don't get it. They have barriers to their faith, things, blocks that that are not leading them to understand and to bow the knee. I think one of them is this overfamiliarity. Some might say, yeah, he was that kid who sat next who sat next to me in synagogue lessons, or I live right down the road from him, or I shared a bedroom with him for 14 years. So who they've known him to be in their experience overrides the voice of God speaking. In this moment, as they hear God's revealed word in in the in the person of Jesus Christ speaking in the synagogue, they let their experiences and their mental blocks override what God is saying. This is a kind of over familiarity that's really self based. It's experience based. It's not a willingness to listen to what God reveals. Not even the fullness of the person of Jesus Christ. They also had some willful barriers. Maybe some were jealous. Oh, he's too popular. He's just from Nazareth. How, how did he end up where he is at, at this point? Not everyone is thrilled when the small town hero turned famous comes home. But also... When it comes to Jewish belief, this would have been very difficult to accept. You know the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So for this man to come and to claim to be God, to show divine power, requires a paradigm shift in who this God is. And there's also another barrier that is not unique to Nazareth or to Israel. If Jesus is, who he says he is that demands everything from you and from me that demands us to give up our control over our lives it demands us to submit my life to him how hard it would be to worship the craftsman down the street and we are just natural people aren't we on our own without the spirit's help We're stuck in our blindness and in our spiritual darkness until the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to see who Jesus is. So what they have done by rejecting this Jesus is they have rejected the prophet. This is the only time Jesus is connected with the word prophet directly in the book of Mark. It's not a common description, so the word means something. Prophets spoke on behalf of God. And in so rejecting Jesus, they were rejecting God's very word. Throughout the Old Testament, it is grievous to reject the prophets, but Israel did it quite often. They didn't like what a prophet would say, and so they would kick him out. We listen to what we want to hear. We have a hard time listening to what God says sometimes. Nazareth and Jesus' family, a microcosm, they rejected Jesus, their kin, their brother. That is a microcosm of the nation of Israel rejecting Jesus, their brother, their kin, as they hung him on the cross and crucified him. When Jesus hung on that cross, all the sins of the world, not just Jews, but Gentiles as well, for all who believe in him, their sins are on Jesus on the cross. Their sins are paid for. God's wrath is satisfied on him for all who receive him by faith. That's a stumbling block to Jews. And that's folly to Gentiles. And it was a stumbling block to Nazareth. But we see that even with such disbelief, prevalent disbelief, God is still growing his kingdom here in Nazareth through the ministry of Jesus. Because we know that the Jews rejected the gospel so that the Gentiles might be brought in. But also there are Jews who are believing here. Because in verse five, it says that Jesus laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And Jesus only did such for those who had faith. God's plan of election has not gone to waste. There are those who are part of the remnant there in Nazareth who are saved. It just wasn't that widespread welcome that we might expect. That leads us to trust that God gets his people, even when it looks unimpressive and even when it's not how we might design it to go. So what Jesus does is he marvels at their unbelief. This is the only time Jesus marvels in the whole book. It's at their hardness of heart. The fact that they could not see who he was. They've seen the signs. They've heard of the wonders. They've listened to the authoritative teaching and the wisdom and his understanding. Yet they continue in their hardness of heart. So someone might ask, why didn't Jesus just prove it to them by doing a miracle that would have convinced them all? That's really not the role of miracles. Maybe you've heard somebody say that if God would just show himself to me, if I could just see a miracle, then I would give everything and I would follow him. Well, the rich man and Lazarus is a case against that. Because in that telling, we hear that at the end, in Luke 16, verse 31 If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Those who do not have faith would not be convinced that Jesus is the Christ if somebody rose from the dead in front of them, if they will not trust Moses and the prophets. We need Moses and the prophets. We need God's word. We need the truth of scripture. And we need the Spirit's work to open our eyes to see it and understand it so Jesus could do no miracles there because there was not faith. And of course, that's not that he was unable, but he would have been throwing pearls before faithless swine. One commentator puts it this way, the tragedy for the townspeople of Nazareth was that Jesus could have done so much more if they had only believed. And we see here, we see here who Jesus is. How willing our Savior is to save and to heal all who come to him. And how tremendously he will pour out his kindness on his children, even if it's just a few in Nazareth. But oh, how terrible and grievous and damning it is to reject this Jesus and his salvation. Let's not be those at whom Jesus marvels for our disbelief. Let's look at the Jesus of faith. This is our last point. The Jesus of faith couple things that don't save us. First of all, impressive miracles. Nazareth is a case against that. Second of all, faithless association with Jesus cannot save you. I don't care what bumper sticker you have on your car. I don't care what's in your social media bio. Being related to Jesus without faith doesn't save you. His family was not automatically saved. Being a Jew does not automatically save. Being integrally involved in serving And leading in a church plant in Kent does not save you. Knowing all about Jesus does not save you. Dropping a God bless you at the store does not save you. Paying great amounts of money for Christian education doesn't save you. Being the friend of a pastor or the son or the daughter of a pastor or being a pastor does not save you. Just hearing Jesus' teaching and just hearing and nothing else does not save you. Here's what saving faith is. First of all, it's a gift of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit sweetly glides into our hearts, awakens us, convinces us of our sin and our need, and enables us to receive and to rest upon Christ alone. And it's a humble reception of what is offered to us in Jesus Christ. Nazareth was proud. They had their intellectual filters and their experiential filters into which Jesus did not fit. And so therefore he was cast out. Their understanding took priority and they disregarded Jesus. We must come with humble faith without the false frameworks through which we forced the idea of Jesus, cultural frameworks, experiential frameworks. We have to come without our own expectations getting in the way, simply sitting at the feet of Jesus and seeing whom he has shown himself to be. You know, we get to see Jesus. We get to see Jesus so clearly and hear about his miracles and listen to his teaching and so much more through Moses and the prophets and through the full revelation, through the New Testament. And would we not be saved as well? Dear friends, let's come with faith, with willingness to see the Savior as he is, to listen. Tear down our cultural expectations for what a religious guru ought to look like. A message that the 2022 religious leaders ought to say, that doesn't matter. What does Jesus say? Let's look past our overfamiliarity. The fact that we've been in these pews regularly for so long. Let's not let that blind us to who Jesus is. Let's be engaged with our hearts and with our minds. And we have to, have to, have to pray for the Spirit's help. We have to come in dependence on God to hear his word. He opens our eyes and our ears to see and to hear the beauty of the gospel and to respond in faith. Jesus was so ordinary that they missed him. You know how God grows us today? Through very ordinary things. Let's never grow tired of coming and hearing his word. He blesses us through his word. Let's never grow tired of coming and seeing baptisms and remembering our baptism and taking the Lord's Supper. These are ordinary things, but they are full of grace. And we have prayer, access to the throne room of grace, and we have fellowship with one another by which God supports us and sustains us. All these ways God sustains us. We are his people now. The church is now his hometown. Let's not commit Nazareth's error. Westminster Larger Catechism gives us a few specific helpful points about how we listen to God's word through faith. And I want to itemize some of these for us with hopes that they might give some practical advice for us to how to listen to God's word, how we are to welcome the hometown prophet with eagerness and with humility. First of all, we come, when we hear the word preached, we come with diligence, preparation, and prayer. Diligence. Come on Sunday, even when you're not feeling like it. Your membership at church is not going to grow you in Christ likeness if you don't come to the fountain and drink. Prepare. Start on Saturday night. Start on Friday. Start on Thursday. Start on Monday. Getting ready for worship. We come into God's presence. And pray before you hear. He makes the text beautiful to us. He makes our hearts soft enough to receive it. And he gives spiritual understanding to natural people. And examine what we hear by the scriptures. Don't let what you hear go in one ear and out the other. Take what I say. Anyone who's preaching, take what is said and examine it with scripture. Be students of scripture. And the catechism continues, receive the truth with faith, love, meekness, and readiness of mind as the word of God. Receive the truth. Let it sink in. Let it drive you out of yourself into a godly perspective. Let it redefine the way you think rather than vice versa. And love God's word. God speaks to his children as their God, as their father. These words are more valuable than much fine gold and they are sweeter than honey from the honeycomb. And they tell us the way of life in Jesus Christ. And lastly, the one that we don't like to hear. Meditate on it, confer of it, and hide it in your hearts. It's a lost art to hide God's word in our heart. First of all, read God's word privately and read it as a family. Even when you think you're so busy, you don't have time for it. Is there really anything that is more important than this? Your children will not grow in Christ likeness just because you say you're a Christian. Come humbly to the fountain and drink from it as a family and memorize it. I'm not telling you like in high school, memorize, you know, so many hundred words every week. Maybe get into a more maintainable rhythm. Read one Psalm every night for a month. After a while, you'll know it. You'll be hiding it in your heart. Then maybe you move to the New Testament and pick a, a paragraph that you really want to hide in your heart and you'll find yourself recalling it and it becomes precious to you. If we're not doing these things, we can never expect that the fruit of the gospel will come forth out of our lives. If we're not willing to diligently listen and examine God's word and receive it with faith and humility and meditate on it and hide it in our hearts, we will be like Nazareth You carry on with an experience-based and self-based faith. Lack of faith, excuse me. Let's not be like Nazareth. Let's see Jesus fully man, fully God, and lean on the Spirit to trust God's word and to understand it, receive and rest upon Jesus alone for salvation.